welcome to the Empowered Podcast. I'm your host, Robin Tudor, Certified Lifestyle Medicine Practitioner. My aim is to help everyday people understand science, not the science, and to use that understanding to make better choices for their health and well-being. Each episode, I'll be bringing my latest Substack post to you in audio form. For the full visual experience, including graphs, charts, images, and videos, view the accompanying post in my Empowered Substack. And now, let's dive in. Episode 12, let's talk about sin, baby, the original antigenic variety. I've discussed the problem of original antigenic sin in relation to the experimental COVID-19 injections in a number of previous posts and podcast episodes, but with the recent publication of an article in the prestigious scientific journal Cell, it's time to revisit the topic. First, a quick refresher on original antigenic sin, or OAS. As I explained in Lies, Damned Lies and Atagi statements, original antigenic sin is a type of programming of the immune system by its first exposure to a particular antigen. When it subsequently encounters a similar pathogen, it attempts to respond using the same strategies it used to defeat the first pathogen, but this response will be ineffective if the new pathogen has evolved different strategies to establish infection. First proposed by Thomas Francis in 1960 to explain why susceptibility to apparently new strains of influenza varied by birth year, OAS is also thought to account for vaccine failure in human papillomavirus or HPV and influenza vaccination campaigns. In a nutshell, if A, a person is exposed to a viral antigen, an antigen being a part of the virus that triggers the immune system's defence mechanisms, and that exposure takes place either by infection with the virus itself or through vaccination, and B, the virus subsequently develops significant mutations in this antigen, and C, the person is exposed to the mutated virus, then D, the antibodies produced by the person's immune system may not be capable of neutralising the virus, which is what antibodies are meant to do, and may in fact produce a worse outcome by triggering a hyperinflammatory response known as disease enhancement. Now, let's take a look at that new paper in Cell, titled Immune Imprinting, Breadth of Variant Recognition and Germinal Center Response in Human SARS-CoV-2 Infection and Vaccination. It's a long and technical read, but worth ploughing through in order to grasp how comprehensively the authors studied human immune responses to SARS-CoV-2 infection and COVID-19 inoculations. The study's authors conducted detailed analyses of the quantity and types of antibodies formed after either infection with SARS-CoV-2 or inoculation with the Pfizer, Moderna, AstraZeneca, Sputnik V or Sinopharm injections, the level of spike protein in lymph nodes and bloodstream after injection with an mRNA product, that is the Pfizer or Moderna shots, and the effect of infection or inoculation with a Pfizer injection on production of antibodies to other types of coronavirus, including SARS-CoV-1 and the four endemic coronaviruses that between them caused 15 to 30% of common colds. And here's what they found. Number one, the injection-induced immune response is narrower than the infection-induced response. In contrast to the broad and balanced immune response induced by infection with SARS-CoV-2, which stimulated antibodies of multiple types, that is immunoglobulins A, M and G, respectively abbreviated IgA, IgM and IgG, and immunoglobulins to both the spike protein and the nuclear capsid or core protein of the virus, the Pfizer COVID-19 injection, quote, induced a highly IgG polarized serological response with minimal IgM and IgA binding spike and receptor binding domain. 
Principal component analysis showed clustered and homogeneous SARS-CoV-2 spike and spike domain-specific serological responses in BNT162B2 vaccinees, that is, people who got the Pfizer shot, compared with infected patients. Or, in plain English, people who received the injection made only one class of antibodies, IgG, to only one part of the virus, the spike protein, which is the most rapidly mutating part of the virus. On the other hand, people who got infected with the virus made multiple types of antibodies to multiple parts of the virus, augering well for their immune system's ability to recognise and fend off infection with variants. Two, the Pfizer injection induces levels of IgG antibodies to spike protein that are as high as those in people with severe COVID-19, but that's not necessarily a good thing. A quote from the article, BNT162B2, that is Pfizer vaccinee receptor binding domain and spike IgG concentrations were comparable to those of severely ill patients, that is people who got COVID-19 and got really sick with it, and higher than those of mildly or moderately ill patients for anti-receptor binding domain antibodies at day 42, end of quote. The authors presented this finding as if it was a selling point for the injection, but other research has found that high levels of IgG to spike protein in COVID-19 patients actually causes lung damage by forming immune complexes with the viral spike protein that trigger the hyperinflammatory state known as the cytokine storm. And this is a quote from an article called Anti-SARS-CoV-2 IgG from Severely Ill COVID-19 Patients Promotes Macrophage Hyperinflammatory Responses. Quote, in COVID-19 patients, high anti-spike IgG teeters are associated with disease severity. Anti-spike IgG from severely ill COVID-19 patients does not only induce hyperinflammation by macrophages, but also may contribute to permeabilization of pulmonary endothelium that is, leakiness of the membrane surrounding the lungs, and microvascular thrombosis, or clots in the tiny blood vessels supplying the lungs. Anti-spike IgG from serum, that's the liquid part of blood, of severely ill COVID-19 patients induces a hyperinflammatory response by human macrophages, which subsequently breaks pulmonary endothelial barrier integrity and induces microvascular thrombosis, end of quote. The cell study authors acknowledged that their ability to detect spike protein in injection recipients' bloodstreams after the second shot is likely hindered by this very process of circulating immune complex formation, but they neglect to discuss the worrying implications of their own conclusions. Quote, the detection of spike antigen in plasma samples is impeded after second-dose Pfizer vaccination, likely due to the formation of circulating immune complexes of anti-spike antibodies and spike protein, end of quote. Is this immune complex formation why we see such high rates of immune-mediated disorders such as myocarditis after the second shot? And are there adverse immunological consequences of becoming infected with SARS-CoV-2 whilst IgG antibodies are highly elevated? Is that why we're seeing outcomes like what is currently being revealed in Scotland and the UK, where the proportion of cases of severe COVID-19 is declining among the unvaccinated while increasing among the fully jabbed? And then there's the role that IgG can play in generating pain does this action of IgG help explain the massive number of reports of chronic pain submitted to pharmacovigilance systems after COVID-19 injections? 
A quick search of OpenVAERS, for instance, OpenVAERS being a website that was set up to provide uh, easy research access to the Vaccine Adverse Events Reporting System, or VAERS database, which is the Vaccine Pharmacovigilance System in the United States, turns up over one million submissions that include the term pain. While some of these reports describe temporary injection site pain that resolved within days, many others tell harrowing tales of body aches, shooting pains that come and go without apparent cause, unrelenting stabbing pain, and pain in the injected limb that has persisted for months post-inoculation, hampering or even preventing normal activities of living. Is there a connection between persistently elevated IgG levels post-injection and these reports of chronic pain? The taxpayer-funded National Institutes of Health isn't interested in finding out, although they acknowledge that the horrific symptoms suffered by AstraZeneca trial victim Brian Dressen and many thousands of others like her, some of whom have been driven to suicide by their intractable pain, are, quote, an immune-mediated response to the spike protein, end of quote. So what are the agencies doing about this? The heads of the NIH, FDA, and CDC have known firsthand about my case and thousands of others. These direct reports began as early as last December. I, along with several injured physicians, continued to reach out to the FDA through emails, phone calls. We did video conferences with Peter Marks and Janet Woodcock, constant emails with Janet Woodcock and myself directly. We have literally asked and we have begged repeatedly for them to acknowledge these reactions, they declined. They know that their lack of acknowledgement has recreated, created insurmountable barrier to our ability to receive medical care from doctors who rely on these agencies for information. They know about the issues with the clinical trials. They know about the deaths. They know about the lack of follow-up on VAERS. They know about the injuries to children. They know about Maddie. I have discussed Maddie with them. They know about the mandates imposed on the injured. They know about the suicides as the results of months-long suffering. They know about the aggressive censorship. They know about the media censorship. They know about the scientific censorship. They know all of it. And they have for months. What does the NIH know? I was one of a lucky few to go to the NIH for research in this area. There was about 50 to 60 people that participated in this research. There was invasive testing, all of the top of the line tests you can imagine, tests that aren't even available to the public. We were instructed by the NIH not to talk about the research. We gladly complied, confident in their reassurances that they would publish their research last summer, which would finally open the door for all victims, all of these people, to receive appropriate medical care. Unfortunately, the NIH is no longer accepting calls on behalf of the injured. This happened shortly after the FDA met with us. This vital lifeline that saved hundreds, myself included, and maybe thousands, that lifeline has now been cut off. The NIH has told me and others that this is an immune-mediated response to the spike protein. CDC, FDA, NIH, we do exist. Your system is broken and you know it. You are constantly and persistently telling the public that your review of the data is thorough and your safety signaling systems are robust. When in reality, there is huge gaps in your system every single step of the way.
You are not taking care of those who suffer severe adverse reactions. Stop telling the public that you are. Your refusal to take action means there will be more like us. Take responsibility for your role in the suffering of good Americans who did their part by taking the vaccine and had no idea this could happen to them. But somehow the NIH has plenty of that lovely taxpayer money to throw at woke issues, like investigating how people from racial, ethnic and other minorities report COVID-19 related discrimination. Three, natural immunity develops over time to more effectively target SARS-CoV-2 variants and other coronaviruses, whilst injection-induced immunity remains fixated on the original Wuhan strain. Quote, viral variant infection elicits variant-specific antibodies, but prior mRNA vaccination imprints serological responses toward Wuhan Hu-1, that is the original wild-type virus, rather than variant antigens, end of quote. Infection with SARS-CoV-2 initially stimulates the production of antibodies that target the variant with which one was infected, with the immune response broadening over time to recognise other SARS-CoV-2 variants, as well as two of the four endemic coronaviruses to which SARS-CoV-2 is most closely related. Quote, over time, infected patient plasma samples showed improvement in variant receptor binding domain binding relative to Wuhan Hu-1 receptor binding domain, suggesting evolution of the antibody response through at least seven weeks post-onset of symptoms, end of quote. Another quote from the article, infected patients show greater boosting of spike IgG and IgA for endemic human beta coronaviruses OC43 and HKU1. End of quote. Again, these are two of the four common coronaviruses that cause winter illnesses every year. However, the immune systems of people who received a COVID-19 injection and subsequently became infected with a variant of SARS-CoV-2 only produced antibodies targeted to the spike protein of the Wuhan strain of the virus on which the injections were based. Quote, Pfizer vaccine IgG Wuhan Hu1 to variant RBD binding ratios did not change from day 21 onward. We quantify a strong imprinting effect of prior vaccination with Wuhan Hu1 spike antigen on antibody specificities following breakthrough infection with viral variants. Despite breakthrough infection with alpha or delta viral variants, the vaccinated individuals showed patterns of IgG binding to viral variant RBDs, that's receptor binding domains, similar to those of individuals exposed to only Wuhan Hu1, end of quote. Notably, original antigenic sin, which the authors of this paper call immune imprinting, was only evident in people who had received COVID-19 injections. Quote, We find that prior vaccination with Wuhan Hu-1-like antigens, followed by infection with alpha or delta variants, gives rise to plasma antibody responses with apparent Wuhan Hu-1-specific imprinting, manifesting as relatively decreased responses to the variant virus epitopes, compared with unvaccinated patients infected with those variant viruses. End of quote. The authors of the cell study claim that, quote, Although susceptibility to infection by viral variants is common to both vaccinated and convalescent populations, convalescent meaning people who have had the infection and then recovered, particularly as antibody teeters decrease over time, our findings lead to the prediction that antibodies derived from infection may provide somewhat decreased protection against virus variants compared with comparable concentrations of antibodies stimulated by vaccination, end of quote. 
However, this assertion does not accord with real-world outcomes. Until the appearance of the Omicron variant, which, judging by the dramatic difference in its genetic sequence to other strains, may in fact not be a variant of SARS-CoV-2 at all, it was exceptionally rare for anyone who had recovered from infection with SARS-CoV-2 to become reinfected with either the same variant or any subsequent one, whilst breakthrough infections, that is infection after receiving a COVID-19 injection, otherwise known as vaccine failure, is common and increasing in frequency. Furthermore, a follow-up study of infected individuals found that their, quote, memory B cells display clonal turnover after 6.2 months, and the antibodies they express have greater somatic hypermutation, increased potency, and resistance to receptor binding domain mutations, indicative of continued evolution of the humoral response, end quote. In other words, no matter what variant of SARS-CoV-2 you were infected with, in the weeks and months after recovery, your immune system developed broad immunity to other variants. 4. COVID-19 injections induce elevated levels of B cells and this may contribute to original antigenic sin. The cell study authors note that, quote, elevated frequencies of germinal center B cells are seen after mRNA vaccination in healthy individuals. Note that germinal centers, which are located in secondary lymphoid organs such as the lymph nodes and the pious patches of the intestine, are like nurseries for B cells. They help them mature and train them to make antibodies more effectively. Contrasting this to the decreased B-cell count found in severely ill COVID-19 patients, they imply that increased B-cells post-injection are favourable to the development of immunity. However, excessive formation of B-cells may contribute to original antigenic sin. This is a quote from an article called Original Antigenic Sin, a potential threat beyond the development of booster vaccination against novel SARS-CoV-2 variants. Quote, it has been speculated that overproduction of memory B-cells could compromise the activation of naive B-cells capable of producing efficient and novel antibodies. End of quote. The sins of the farmers shall be visited upon the injected. In summary, while original antigenic sin has been observed after either infection with or vaccination against other types of viruses, most notably influenza viruses, in the case of SARS-CoV-2, there is no evidence of original antigenic sin occurring after infection, but mounting evidence that it is induced by COVID-19 injections. But that's not all that the cell study revealed. Contrary to assertions by fact-checkers, public health bodies and the vaccine manufacturers themselves, the genetic material in mRNA shots, that is the Pfizer and Moderna products, is not quickly broken down and removed from the body. A Reuters fact check claims that the mRNA in these shots is broken down shortly after vaccination and does not stay in the body, while a page on the CDC's website claims that our cells break down mRNA and get rid of it within a few days after vaccination. And scientists estimate that the spike protein, like other proteins our bodies create, may stay in the body up to a few weeks. But in fact, the research has found mRNA from the injections in the germinal centres of lymph nodes for as long as 60 days, beyond which they stopped testing for it. And that was for up to 60 days after the second shot. Quote, we performed in situ hybridization with control and SARS-CoV-2 mRNA-specific RNA scope probes in the core needle biopsies of the ipsilateral, meaning same side as, as the injection was given on, axillary, meaning armpit, lymph nodes that were collected 7 to 60 days after the second dose of Moderna or Pfizer vaccination and detected vaccine mRNA collected in the germinal centres of lymph nodes 
on days 7, 16 and 37 post-vaccination, with lower but still appreciable specific signal at day 60, end of quote. They also detected genetic material from the injections at other sites besides the lymph nodes, albeit rarely. Quote, only rare foci of vaccine mRNA were seen outside of germinal centres, end of quote. And they found spike protein, which the mRNA in the shots instructs the recipient cells to make, in the bloodstream of the vast majority of inoculees, at essentially the same levels as in people infected with the virus. Quote, we detected spike antigen, that's the protein, in 96% of vaccinees in plasma collected one to two days after the prime injection, with antigen levels reaching as high as 174 picograms per milliliter. The range of spike antigen concentrations in the blood of vaccinees at this early time point largely overlaps with the range of spike antigen concentrations reported in plasma in a study of acute infection, although a small number of infected individuals had higher concentrations in the nanograms per milliliter range. At later time points after vaccination, the concentrations of spike antigen in blood quickly decrease, although spike is still detectable in plasma, in 63% of vaccinees one week after the first dose. End of quote. Injection-induced spike protein persisted in the germinal centres of lymph nodes for much longer, up to two months after the second shot. Quote, Spike antigen in mRNA-vaccinated patient lymph nodes vary between individuals but showed abundant spike protein in germinal centres 16 days post-second dose, with spike antigen still present as late as 60 days post-second dose, end of quote. So what does it all mean? The short answer to that question is pretty much everything you were told about COVID-19 injections is untrue. The longer answer is, we don't know what the effects of provoking an unbalanced and narrowly focused immune response to SARS-CoV-2, inducing elevated levels of IgG antibodies, and having mRNA and spike protein hanging around in people's bodies for weeks to months after injection will be. We may already be seeing the impact of original antigenic sin, immune-mediated and spike protein-induced pathologies on vast numbers of people. But health authorities and regulatory agencies aren't showing any interest in investigating the extreme safety signals being thrown off by pharmacovigilance databases like theirs. And I encourage you to take a look at the post accompanying this podcast to see a visual representation of just how extreme that safety signal generated by VAERS is compared to the safety signal generated by vaccines in previous years. I'll leave you to draw your own conclusions about what this stony-faced indifference to the suffering and death unleashed by experimental, inadequately tested, rush-to-market COVID-19 injections by the health agencies that are supposed to be protecting us might mean. But I provided a hint about mine with a meme at the end of the post. Some of you are going to keep trusting the government until your pronouns are was, were. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend and on your socials and make sure you subscribe to my Empowered Substack so you never miss a post.